So, uh, last week, Pastor Brian talked about grace and faith, and uh, as he and I were talking about this message today, and he had let me know what he was going to be preaching on, um, I'd love to, for either of us to be able to take credit for this kind of being a part one and a part two, um, but that wasn't our doing, that was, those were planned independently, um, which I thought was pretty cool, that we would plan two, two messages for consecutive weeks and that they would be kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, it's amazing how God works through in whatever way he sees fit. Um, so today we're going to talk about holiness and humanity, um, but as I mentioned, it's kind of a continuation, if you were here last week, of what was spoken of last week during the message, in that um, last week we talked about God's grace, that undeserved favor, undeserved merit that rightness with God that we could never earn, but that he saw fit to give us through Christ on the cross. And then we talked about faith being the mechanism, if you will, that activates that grace, where we say, yes, Lord, I trust in Jesus. And we are then given his grace and made right with the Father. So today we're going to talk about, I'm sure this isn't a big surprise, but holiness God's holiness and humanity, our humanity, our broken nature, and how do we merge those two up? How do we, how do we have any right to be in the presence of this holy God, and, and why do we get this grace? And we're going to do that through Scripture, as I mentioned earlier. So I guess without any further ado, that sets the stage. Let's dive in. Um, so holiness, when we talk about God's holiness... Um, we're talking about how he is worthy of worship or veneration. That's a big word that just means uh, sincere admiration or awe um, in a way. Um, he's sacred. He's divine. Hallowed is another word. Um, in many versions of the Lord's Prayer, you'll hear, hallowed be thy name. Holy. May we make it holy. Um, probably, it's not even up there, but maybe the best definition of this word as it relates to how it's used in the Bible, is set apart. There is something about God that is above and beyond and greater than anything we can even dream up. And that's what we mean when we talk about his holiness. This is a, this is a being that we don't have any right in our natural state, and we'll go through this as we go, but we don't have any right to approach the throne of this being. He, he's too other. He's too separate. He's too holy. So we'll talk a lot about the Old Testament where God is declared as holy, as, again, set apart. Um, and we see this throughout Scripture, but I have a few examples up here, small snippets um, that I'll explain as we go through them. And this will kind of be the theme today, lots of Scripture, um, again, smaller pieces, um, but with a little context added in. And... The first one that I want to talk about comes from Exodus, chapter 3, and this is um, God speaking with Moses. Um, Moses was, uh, had been an Egyptian prince or, or royalty, um, adopted, because <laughs> he was a Hebrew by nature, or by uh, birth, and he, uh, he, had, he had run away from that, he had done some things he shouldn't have done, and God appears to him in the wilderness in uh, a burning bush that isn't burning, if you know your Old Testament. 
Um, and, and this is one of the first times this word appears in the Old Testament where he says, God says, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Again, set apart. There's something going on here, Moses, that isn't what you're used to. And I'm going to need you to take your sandals off because it's, <laughs> it's holy. Um, this is a sign of reverence and respect. Um, and so, again, that's all the way back in Exodus. So thousands and thousands of years ago now, um, toward the beginning of, of the, the Bible, where we see that not only is God holy, but literally his presence makes the ground around him holy. Moving on into the Psalms, where uh, the, the psalmist who wrote this psalm in 96 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. And again, I hope this helps to, uh, these scriptures were chosen just kind of show what this holiness really means. Because you don't tremble before things very often. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's pretty rare, and I'm not trying to be macho here, but it's pretty rare that something scares me so much that I tremble. I'm sure it's happened. Probably happened a lot more when I was smaller. <laughs> but to really tremble before something, that means this is something different than what I see every day. This is Holy. I don't know how many times I can say that word in a sermon, but it's going to be a lot. <laughs> um, in Isaiah, so Isaiah was a prophet, and we see him have this vision where he's basically in God's throne room through this vision. And he sees all manner, there's a lot more in Revelation at the end of the New Testament, but he sees a lot of things that aren't normal, things that are different from, the, from what he would normally see. And among these are these messengers of God, these angels. And in Isaiah 6, we see that one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You may have heard this before, but in Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, there is no punctuation. There's no way to really emphasize something a lot unless you repeat it. And again, many of you have probably heard this before, but holy, holy, holy means really, really holy. If it was written in today and maybe in a text message or something, it'd probably be all caps with a bunch of exclamation points behind it. He's saying, this being is holier than anything else, really. Um, that kind of emphasis. And then in Ezekiel, um, but I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. So the reason this one's up there is because we have basically in, I'm going to do this, then this will happen. What we have here is basically the inference that they will know I'm the Lord because I am holy. So there's almost a presupposition here in Scripture that says, only the Lord is holy. And this is how you're going to know that I'm the Lord, because I'm holy. So basically, his holiness and his being can't be separated. He is holy. That's who he is by his very nature. So that's a quick look at the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we see this person of Jesus. We talked about it with the, with the children earlier this morning, that he's central to everything that the gospel is, everything that we believe as a church and what we teach. And he is referred to as holy many times in the New Testament. Again, we've established there's only that last verse, that one from Ezekiel, tells us that the only way you're going to know that I'm the Lord is because I'm holy. It's an exclusive thing. Well, Jesus is holy too. I think we can infer pretty easily that Jesus has to be God. Okay, so there's a Jesus 
divinity of Jesus is kind of thrown in with this as we study this holiness. But as we look through some scriptures where Jesus is specifically referred to as holy, um, we'll start in Mark, right at the beginning of Mark, so really toward the beginning of his ministry. Um, Jesus comes across, this is the first recorded one in Mark, where he comes across somebody who's uh, suffering from demon possession. There's an evil spirit living inside this person or uh, influencing their actions at the very least. And this demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's another statement where Jesus, even among the evil spirits, they know he's holy. And he's the only one, God is the only being they would use that designation for. In John 6, we see um, Jesus basically stating, you know, do, as things start to get rougher for the disciples, hey, you know, is this, basically I'm paraphrasing here, but is this too challenging for you? Do you need to leave? You know, can you, can you take this, this cross that I'm asking you to bear to be a disciple? And Simon Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here, so we've already seen a demon or an evil spirit understand this about Jesus. Now we're seeing the disciples start to understand it too. These people who walked with him closely for three plus years say, this guy's holy. And these are, these are Old Testament believing Jews. These are not people who throw that word around very lightly. So Peter here is saying, you're the Holy One of God. This is it. We're hitching our wagon to your cart, and we're coming with you. And we believe you are holy. Again, pretty huge statement back then, um, especially from this group of people. Sticking with Peter, but going to his uh, letters that he wrote after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, in 1 Peter 1, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I think we're probably at 50 plus times with that word already, but we'll keep rolling. Um, so here we have, again, we're just kind of stepping through this. We have Peter, who's already declared Jesus to be holy in the Gospel of John, stating that God calls us to be holy, and we'll get there. We'll get there. That's a little bit of a segue into our second part of our, of our message today. But here he's stating God is holy, and he calls us to be holy. And then Revelation, I mentioned it earlier, in chapter 4, um, this is more of a repeat, but it's in the New Testament where Jesus has been glorified. The disciple John is having a vision of all this while he's exiled on an island called Patmos. And he has this vision, and he sees these angelic messengers too. Same ones, or maybe not the same ones, but the same group of messengers that Isaiah saw in his vision. And here they are again saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So both his holiness and his eternal nature are talked about here. But again, we see that emphasis on he is holy of holies. He is as holy as it comes, as anything can be. If you can imagine the holiest thing you can think of, he's beyond it. So all of this paints a picture where we kind of need an illustration, or at least it helps for me to have an illustration to show what we're talking about here. And here it is. It might be a little small on the screen, but it's in your bulletin insert as well. God's holiness on an upward tra trajectory. And I want to stop here and state that what do I mean by this? And we'll, we'll continue to build on this illustration. But this doesn't mean God's getting more holy. 
He, he started infinitely holy. He'll end infinitely. Well, he'll never end. He will continue to be infinitely holy throughout eternity. But our awareness of his holiness can increase as we study the word, as we walk with him, as we understand more about who he is. The true picture of who he is is more and more and more and more holy to the point that we can't fathom it, but we can do our best. And I think this illustration helps us to do that, to say, God, you are holy and infinitely so. Um, I had a conversation on this one time with, uh, in a Bible study and I mentioned to someone, yeah, notice this, it's a line. It goes on forever. There's no limit to how holy God is. And this gentleman, he's a good friend of mine, he stopped me and he said, hey, it's been a long time since I was in geometry class, but I'm pretty sure that's a ray. <laughs> and I said, you know what, you're right, it's a ray. It, st- it starts at one point where we first understand who he is. And, and we may have a limited view of his holiness, but as we continue to walk with him, we understand more about how holy he is. And there's no end to that, especially for those of us who believe in him and will spend eternity with him. We'll continue to see his holiness manifested in him throughout eternity. That's what this is meant to portray. So that was a walk through holiness. It's, um, it's about his apartness from us. And now we'll dive into the other side of that equation. Maybe not always as fun to talk about. But I think by the end it should be, hopefully we'll talk about, we will talk about how the redemption in Christ helps to reconcile these two. But now that we've talked about his holiness and hopefully painted a clear picture that this is a, this is a big deal, um, let's talk about human sinfulness. Again, the sermon title being holiness and humanity. Um, so sinfulness, the fact that we fall short. Again, not that fun to talk about, but I think we all know it's true. So sinfulness is violation of divine law, falling short of God's perfect standard. Again, in God's infinite holiness, his perfection, um, the only way we have any right to approach him is if we're perfect too. But we can't live up to that. I can't live up to that. I would never, uh, five minutes and, and I'll prove that that's not the case. I can't be perfect. Jesus could, and we'll get there. But first, let's talk about how this sinfulness came about. And that's all the way back in Genesis 3 at almost the very beginning of the Bible. We talk about um, Genesis 1 and 2 is just creation. God created this perfection. He saw that it was good. He rested. And then by Genesis 3, Adam and Eve make the first mistake in creation. Trust someone they shouldn't have. um, Act of their own accord rather than the way God would have them act. And... Sin enters the world. So no longer is the world perfect, no longer is humanity perfect. It is now fallen. It is broken. It is needing a savior. So as we continue through the Old Testament, just a couple chapters later, really one chapter later in Genesis 4, we see uh, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons, um, both of whom offered something to the Lord and Cain's heart wasn't in it, basically, is the bottom line. Abel's was. God saw Abel's offering as pleasing. He did not see Cain's offering as pleasing. And Cain was angry about that, which, honestly, I think is understandable. I have a brother. If he and I both offered something to the Lord, and the Lord said, yeah, I like his, but I don't like yours, yeah, I'd be pretty mad, too. But we get this verse, so Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is God speaking to Cain. And you can see 4-7-B, so that's the second part of verse 7. Verse 4-8-A, the first part of the next verse, is Cain murdering Abel. So clearly the message wasn't received that, hey, you've got to rule over this. Um, He makes a pretty grievous mistake there. Um, But God does redeem him. God does mark Cain so that he will not be harmed. He still loves Cain. God loves us in the midst of our sin. God loves us. That love is, can't be broken. He will love us no matter what we do. But there was still a sin. There was still a mistake. There still needed to be reconciliation to the Father for that to happen. As we move through um, the Old Testament, in Second Samuel, um, David was a man of great character. He was a king in Israel. He had a lot of wonderful qualities, but he made a lot of big mistakes too. Um, he, he sent another man to uh, the front lines to be murdered in a war um, so that he, because of David's lust for that man's wife, um, he, he didn't always rule the way he should. He usually did, but he didn't always. And after some of these mistakes, we see David say to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So again, we see a man that if we were using the world standards of what they might think holy means, David's probably holy. He's a king. He follows in God's ways. He doesn't usually wrong people. But he has before, and he has in great measure. And again, the standard of perfection and holiness demands the minute David made a mistake, he can't be holy on his own anymore. He's fallen. He now is in need of grace. And one more Old Testament scripture in 1 Kings. If they sin against you, and this is uh, Solomon speaking, by the way, who was the wisest king in the Old Testament, was able to pray to God for exceptional wisdom to be able to understand more about the world than maybe anybody before or since, apart from Jesus. And he says, when he's speaking to the Israelites, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. So one more time, we've got a very wise Old Testament king stating, hey, people are going to sin against you because everybody messes up. Again, everybody falls short of that standard. So, That's a quick look at it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's a lot more of the same, but again, with the person of Jesus introduced. Later in the Gospel of John, we looked at um, some some things from John earlier, but we have a woman who is caught in the act of adultery and brought out before, um, well, Jesus is in town when this happens, and they know he's a great teacher and follower of Old Testament law. And so they bring her out and say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses, the law of Moses commands that we stone this woman, that we put her to death. She's, she's sinned against God and others. She doesn't deserve grace. And so they continue bothering Jesus about this. I actually love this picture because he bends down and starts drawing in the dirt, um, basically not, not answering them on their terms, but on his is how I see that. <laughs> and he says... Well, as they continue to ask him, he stands up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And then he bends back down and he writes in the dirt again. <laughs> it's just, it's, a, it's an ultimate mic drop. Just says, hey, any of you that haven't messed up, do what you need to do. But if you have, well, we'll see what they do when they realize that they have messed up. Um, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. You can almost insert wiser ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So they all realize, oh, I fall short of that standard too. I shouldn't be the first to cast a stone because I've messed up and I fall short of God's standards too. So there's Jesus making this clear as we continue to kind of work from, okay, yes, we're broken, we're fallen, we're sinful, but how do we redeem it? Here's Jesus saying, I'm going to show you how I redeemed it for this woman. Um, as we move past the Gospels into the letters after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, um, in Romans, Paul writes, um, and by the way, Romans is a wonderful book for, um, for I guess, understanding more about the basics of the faith. Uh, Paul wrote it to the church in Rome that he didn't know very well. And so he knew he had to start kind of from level one or level zero and work his way up. So it's a very good book for and letter written by Paul to walk us through theology um, after Christ's uh, saving resurrection. But early in that letter, he writes, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not most, not, you know, we sin sometimes. No, everybody. Everybody who is still on this earth, because by then Jesus had ascended, has sinned and fallen short. A few chapters later in this same letter, he states, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, and we'll just cut it off there just as we continue with our, our kind of look at this sinfulness idea. But there's another example of Paul stating that Hey, sin is here, and it's with everybody. Nobody's exempt from this, again, save for Jesus. And then 1 John 1.8, so this is a letter written by the disciple John, um, and remember that 1.8 because we'll, we'll continue in that chapter in, a, in just a few minutes. But we have John stating, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And again, this is one of the holiest people really to ever walk the earth from, again, from earthly standards, not by God's standard. John was not holy by God's standard on his own. But this was a man who followed God. And he says, if, if anybody says, hey, I'm without sin, I've conquered it, they're deceiving themselves. They haven't. And the truth isn't in them. So, again, pretty clear picture that there's a problem. <laughs> We've laid out that there's a holy God an infinitely holy God, <clears throat> and that we are broken and sinful and on our own cannot measure up to his standards. So you can see the more you understand about this, the more that gap can widen. Again, this isn't just a disclaimer on that line. That doesn't mean that as we go, we get more sinful. It means that the more we read scripture, the more we understand about God's standard, the more we should realize that we cannot measure up to it without his help. And so that gap gets wider and wider and wider. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there. If it did, this would be a really depressing sermon if I just walked off right now. <laughs> but I'm not going to, I promise. But we see this problem, don't we? There is a problem here. And there's only one way 
to find a solution. In Romans, later in Romans, same book, same author, same audience, um, Paul continues to lay out that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can see us starting to move toward the solution here, just like Paul did in his letter once he had laid out the problem. He stated, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's the solution. Colossians, written to another group of believers by Paul. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that picture. That when Jesus Christ was on the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed there with him. That recognizing that we do fall short, but that all those problems, all those iniquities were nailed up there with him and are no longer with us. 1 John 1.9, I promised we'd go there. We went to 1 John 1.8, here's 1.9. Um, having just laid out that if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John goes on and says, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, here's the solution. So in his infinite holiness and wisdom, God saw us in our sin. He saw that gap between his holiness and our imperfection. And he made a way for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the problem one more time. Our awareness of these two things as we continue to walk with God, and there's our solution. That no matter where you are in your walk with God, that the cross is enough to cover that gap. So a couple of things about that before we conclude. Um, the, again, these do go on basically infinitely. We are infinitely less holy than he is. So there's really no way, I want to make sure I say this correctly, there is really no way to make the cross too big. No matter how big you make it, you're right. It is the only way to reconcile yourself to the Father and the only way to make yourself right with him. And Jesus' death on that cross was a gift that was offered to all. And again, no matter how, how far away from God you feel you are, it's not too far for the cross. Um, the one mistake we can make with a chart like this is what, uh, and again, this isn't, this isn't actually my original. You can see a citation there. Um, this is pulled from a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. Um, but one thing we could do is shrink it. And then the gap wouldn't be bridged anymore. Um, we don't have that power. The cross is enough. But we can say, especially starting at the bottom of that gap, we can say, hey, I, I got to get myself to this point, And then the cross can take me the rest of the way. I need to serve God in this way, and then he can bridge the rest of the gap. I would encourage you to shy away from that. The cross is enough. You don't need to make yourself holy and, and then be accepted by God. No, trust in Jesus in the fact that the cross is enough in your case and everyone else's who trusts in him. 
So finally, as we conclude, the application. Um, boy, we're going to Romans a lot, but it's a great, great letter to kind of talk through this. Um, so again, Paul states, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Um, slaves meant a little, something a little bit different back then. It was more of a, a mutual relationship. Um, so I wouldn't get hung up on that word. Uh, what I like to think of when I read this is master rather than slave. Hey, your master was sin. Your master is now Christ. Your master is now God. For me, that clears things up a little bit. Um, and then in Ephesians, again, another letter by Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, now we get to the application of this. Again, um, somebody might stop me if I, don't, if I didn't go to this slide and say, well, you're, you're stating it's all on, on God. Does that mean that we can do whatever we want? And Paul addresses this in another letter too and states, by no means... Um, but we don't, we don't serve God, we don't walk in his ways, we don't strive to do good works so we can be saved. We strive to do good works because we are saved. So trusting in Jesus gives us the freedom to walk in those ways. Again, I'll state it again. Not to earn our salvation, not to earn our way to him, not to fill that gap on our own, but because our salvation has already been bought for us by Christ on the cross. That gap has been filled by the cross. He, his death and resurrection were enough. And now we can walk in confidence and do the things that God calls us to do, knowing that when we fall short, um, and I'll end with this analogy, that um, we're already on the, uh, the boat of salvation, so to speak. Maybe you've heard that one before, that when we fall, when we fall short, we're not thrown overboard. We're not cast out of the family. We are not no longer reconciled with God. We're falling down on the deck. And Jesus will reach down, pull us up, look us in the eye, and say, hey, I covered that. Now just focus on me and move forward. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word that teaches us so much about you, that teaches us so much about Christ and helps us to understand that uh, there is no way for us to make it to you without your help, Lord, that you are separate, you are holy, you are apart from us, Lord, until we place our faith in Christ, Lord. May the cross always be the center of our focus um, as we move through our lives. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to know that we are adopted into your family, Lord, permanently when we place our faith in him. Lord, please just uh, be with us as we move through uh, this week, this year of 2023, and uh, help us to stay focused on that cross and what it means for how we interact with you, that we are made right with you, and that... Uh, we can treat others better, that we can treat our families better um, and walk in your ways because we are saved, knowing that when we fall short, we are still saved, Father. And 
that you are still with us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.